Welcome to We Are Neighbors podcast, hosted by myself, Jolie Angel Robinson, President and CEO of Housing Forward, along with my amazing colleague, (laughs) Rebecca Hickam, Director of Coordinated Access for Housing Forward. We Are Neighbors is a space for us to center the experiences and voice of those who have lived experience and talk to experts on the entire topic of homelessness, the who, how, what, and really dig into policies and practices that will help us end homelessness. We want to do that. Absolutely. We'll have a new episode each month. So join us as we explore the issue of homelessness. We look forward to continuing to raise awareness, support advocacy, and move us all to action that we can take together to make the experience of homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. Every neighbor deserves to have a safe, stable place to call home. We are all neighbors joining in the work to secure that basic human right. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone out there. Happy Friday to you. My name is Jolie Angel Robinson. I'm the president and CEO of Housing Forward. We are the lead agency here in Dallas and Collin County, and we work together with several other partners, including nonprofits, uh, different cities, our philanthropic community, to make the experience of homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. I am super excited that you are here and that you're joining us for the first installment of our 2023 Hard Conversation series. During this series, we will talk to guests from around the country as we explore the causes and solutions to homelessness. This year's series, for the second year in a row, I can't say enough thank you, uh, thank yous to our sponsor, Ashford Hospitality Trust. Many thanks to you, Ashford Hospitality, for your support of our work. We could not continue these important conversations without you. Before I go any further, I have to introduce the most fabulous co-host there is, Rebecca Hickam. She is our director of the Coordinated Access System. Rebecca, I'm so happy you're out there in the virtual world co-hosting alongside me. She is, as I mentioned, one of the amazing directors here at Housing Forward. If you listen to our podcast, which I am going to assume all of you already do, our podcast known as We Are Neighbors, she is my wonderful co-host there. Um, we have an amazing mug that we can share together. Do you even podcast, bro? Um, so, so I'm happy that she's here today to be my co-host of our hard conversation. Um, if you haven't listened, I know you maybe just haven't had a chance to get to it yet. That's completely okay. Um, you can check us out on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Good to see you, Rebecca. Good to see you, Jolie, and good to see your mug. Thank you for that introduction. Um, So excited to be here. I know that we have often discussed important books in the Hard Conversation series. Last year, we discussed homelessness as a housing problem and in the midst of plenty, homelessness and what to do about it um, with their respective co-authors. Today, we're going to discuss a book that has been mentioned by many in the same breath with those two books. Uh, and that book we're going to discuss today is called Fixer Upper, How to, How to Repair Americans, America's Broken Housing System. And uh, we are so excited that the author of that book, Dr. Jenny Schutz, uh, is here to join us. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Great to know you guys have been reading such fun books already. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, just for a little bit more of an introduction, uh, Dr. Jenny Schutz earned her PhD in public policy from Harvard University. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and is an expert in urban economics and housing policy. Before joining Brookings, Dr. Schutz served as a principal economist at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. All of that sounds really fantastic. It does. Uh, Dr. Schutz has written numerous peer-reviewed journal articles on land use regulation, housing prices, urban amenities, and neighborhood change. Uh, Dr. Schutz has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, PBS NewsHour, the Indicator Podcast, Vox, and Slate. Thank you for all of that tremendous work. I mean, that is quite impressive. Um, and thank you, Jenny, for not only writing this important book, for, but for joining us today. One of the most important reasons we read and are discussing um, this book, we read and are discussing this book, is because we know that housing is the solution to homelessness. So I look forward to unpacking the themes and nuggets you provided throughout your book on housing. Before we continue, everyone, I know the chat is disabled. We are using the Q&A feature, so we want to be able to answer some of your questions at the end of our discussion as time allows. So please don't hesitate as we're going along in our conversation today to add your question in the Q&A uh, section, and we'll be sure that we get to it at the end of our conversations. Um, you'll see that Q&A section at the bottom of your screen in that menu bar. So let's dig right in. I love the way the team has kind of structured our conversation today. We're going to kind of take it chapter by chapter. Um, and this book really builds upon itself chapter after chapter. So Dr. Jenny, the title of your book is Fixer Upper, How to Repair America's Broken Housing Systems. And from your perspective, what is broken? Let's start with that. What is broken within our housing system? Sure. Um, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here and talk with you. Um, I know you guys are going to know a lot of the background for this already. Um, so the, the two biggest problems that I want people to understand and think about with this book are first our housing production system, which is really broken um, and has been for quite a while. And then second, the way we provide support for low-income households. So if we take the first one, we essentially just haven't been building enough homes to keep up with the demand created by population growth and job growth for about a decade across the country. In the Great Recession, you probably remember, we stopped building homes altogether for a couple of years. People couldn't qualify for mortgages. A lot of people lost their jobs. We lost a bunch of our construction workforce. So we just stopped building homes altogether. It took us quite a while to ramp back up. And before the pandemic, we were just barely getting back to the levels that we we were at in the early to mid 2000s. So we're about a decade in the hole nationally. And some of the estimates are that we need maybe three to four million housing units across the country just to make up for all of the new households and all of the population growth. Um, it's much worse than that, though, if we zoom in on some of the highest paid job markets, some of the most expensive cities. Um, Texas has actually been doing better than, uh, than the East Coast. So I live in Washington, D.C. We haven't been building enough homes for more like 20 years. And if you go to California, they haven't been building enough homes for more like 40 years. So there are places in the country where the deficit is even worse. And just, you know, there literally are not enough homes for all the people looking for a place to live. The second problem, which is particularly relevant for thinking about solutions to homelessness, is that 
everywhere in the country, the poorest 20-25% of households can't afford to pay for market rate housing without some kind of a subsidy. And this is just because people's incomes are too low. Incomes haven't kept up with the cost of living even before the current inflation problem, people just don't earn enough money to pay for the minimum cost of renting an apartment. Um, and the, you know, the way to, to fix that is to give people money or give them vouchers or some sort of subsidy to help. But we have also made a policy decision not to provide support for most low-income households. And these two problems make each other worse. Uh, the places where housing is scarcest, it is hardest to find housing and cost the most to provide people uh, with some kind of a subsidy. Um, but everywhere in the country, we are really facing a deficit of units and not enough support from the government. Thanks, Jenny, for outlining um, kind of what's broken in our housing system. And I, I, working in the homeless service system, I often wish that I had a magic wand and could fix it. Um, so let's say that we do have a magic wand and could start over again. Uh, what would a well-functioning housing system look like? Sure. Um, in some ways, a well-functioning housing system would look more like the markets for other kinds of goods and services in the sense that when demand for something increases, we build more of it. Um, so you know, one of the most important features is just if we have more people moving into a city or into a state and needing a place to live, that we would expect the private sector to build for that, that we would expect to see more homes and more apartments get built. Um, if we think about kind of at a spatial level, the neighborhoods that have the highest demand for housing should be adding to the supply. And that's one of the really key features that right now, a lot of the most desirable places build almost no additional housing at all. They've essentially frozen their supply. We should also see housing markets providing a diversity of housing options that match people's budgets, people's household sizes, their preferences. So for instance, the fastest growing segment of households is one person households driven often by older households. Um, and yet we don't actually add nearly as many small housing units as we need. So we have a mismatch, not just the number of units, but often in the price of units, in the size, and in the location where the supply just isn't responsive to what people want. Um, and then I think it's also really important to understand that even though we think of it as kind of outside the market's responsibility, we are all better off when everybody has access to decent quality housing in safe, healthy neighborhoods and in reasonable commuting distance for their jobs. Um, and we can talk more about why some of those things are, but we are all better off, right? Middle income, high income households are better off when everybody is well and stably housed. And so we need to build that into our understanding of whether the market is working well or not. I really appreciate it. Every so often you'll see me put my head down. I am I am a ferocious note taker. And so you you said a line there that, you know, a lot of conversations that I'm in is around the diversity of housing options, which is really, really key and important. So thank you for, for lifting that up. Our housing systems, though, as you mentioned, there is a lack of diversity of housing options. Our housing systems have benefited whole generations, right? We can't also take away from the fact that it has been um, a wealth building tool for entire generations and families, um, but not everyone has had access and or opportunity to fully realize those benefits, whether through historical policies that discriminated against people or simply the nature of credit and financing. Um, I think 
think about redlining. Many of us have talked about redlining, um, talk about like loans and people not having the ability to go after some of the mortgage loans. And many might say that we should just let the market continue to operate as it has. But how might that approach continue to widen the wealth gap? Yeah, I mean, one thing I think we should recognize is that housing markets are very regulated. So there are lots and lots of housing policies, many of which operate kind of in the background, and we sort of take them for granted. But some of the policies that we have in place actually make it harder for markets to work well. Um, so we think, for instance, of you know the mortgage markets that when you want to buy a home, you can go into a bank uh, or call up uh, you know Quicken Loans and ask for a mortgage and take that out. The entire mortgage system exists the way it does because the government has created it. Um, there's been a lot of thought going into creating Fannie and Freddie to create a stable mortgage market. Um, but that also has not been done equitably. And we know that it's actually, you know, in, until pretty recently in our country's history, it was legal just to turn people down for a mortgage, deny them credit, to deny them being able to buy a home based on race, ethnicity, family status, um, and other characteristics. So we, we have created a lot of disparities in our housing outcomes through policies and even when we remove some of those legal barriers, we don't take away the generations of wealth disparities that have accumulated. So one of the stats that I find uh, sort of helpful to think about this is that most white households, when they buy their first home, they get assistance with the down payment from parents or grandparents or family. Um, and their parents and family are able to do that because they themselves were homeowners and built wealth. Young Black and Latino households, when they buy their first home, often don't get assistance because their families weren't able to build wealth through homeownership themselves and don't have that to pass along. And that kind of disparity is going to take really intentional policies to change it. Even just getting rid of legal discrimination, it does not make the racial wealth gap or the racial homeownership gap go away. We're going to need to be much more intentional. In a previous uh, hard conversation, one of the authors, authors that we spoke hypothesized that relatively small um, but significant increases in housing vouchers could put a, a dent in the rates of homelessness. You rightly cautious us, though, that more housing vouchers alone won't solve the larger, more complicated problem of housing insecurity. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, this is a really tough question because housing vouchers, we know, are one of the most effective policy tools we have to getting people housed, keeping them housed. You know, it can be an absolute lifesaver for families to get a voucher and to be able to cover the cost of their housing. But we are limited not just by the number of vouchers, but by the number of homes there are to put people into, um, and particularly the homes that are available to rent and that are available at the rental standards that are set by HUD. Um, so we, you know, even if we made housing vouchers an entitlement tomorrow and expanded them, you have to have apartments that are available. You know, we know in some of the tightest markets in places like Los Angeles, where housing is very limited and there are a lot of low-income people, that most people who are offered a voucher can't use it, can't actually lease up. Um, you know, if you have 20 people applying to rent every apartment, only one of them is going to get it. And 19 people aren't going to have a place to live. So, you know, at the end of the day, we can't get around the lack of houses as a limiting factor. 
even things like source of income discrimination laws that make it illegal for landlords to turn down voucher holders because they have a voucher. Again, if they have 20 people applying for the apartment, they're not going to be able to give it to most people. So we have to have more homes for people to go to. More rental housing is also really important. So we have made it difficult to build apartments in a lot of places. And then there's just no rental housing available for people even to take a voucher to. I mean, so timely and appropriate. I just on LinkedIn um, earlier today posted an article that was found in the New York Times about um, a student who received a voucher. And it really illustrated very well the difficulty in having a voucher, as you mentioned. And I kind of teased out a few things. Even though individuals have a voucher, it's still difficult because of the affordability, right? The affordability of whatever um, property that they're trying to rent or home that they're trying to have, the willingness of landlords to take vouchers, right? That is not a requirement. Um, as you mentioned, that source of income discrimination. Safety is something that people think about as well. Where in, in the community is the um, apartment or the unit that they are trying to utilize the voucher on? Sometimes it comes with some unnecessarily high barriers, right? Double deposits, extra months of rent that you can show that are, that, that are, is in your bank account. And then the fifth one kind of that you talked about as well is that proximity to work or school is also challenging. So, you know, I, I thank you for illustrating that point that it, it, it would be nice if the magic wand allowed us to continue to increase the utilization of vouchers, but there are some very real barriers that um, even having a voucher, you still have some barriers that are hard to kind of overcome. Um, so thank you. And thank you, team. We, we have that in the chat to share that New York Times article. Um, moving on to kind of chapter two and some of the things that were teased out during that. Um, build more homes where people want to live. Loved it. Right. Really simple to understand um, and kind of gets to the point. And it does really sound simple, but why don't we simply do just that? Build more homes where people want to live. What often holds us back um, from that type of development? Sure. So really one of the unique things about housing relative to other kinds of goods and services is that in order to build a house or alter a house, you have to get permission from the local government. So you know, if you own a piece of land, and you want to build a home on it or you want to build an apartment building, you have to go through a process of asking, I want to change this from an empty piece of land or from you know, a farm. I want to build something on this. Local governments control the supply of housing and local governments have chosen to outsource a lot of their authority to people who already live in the community. So the typical process is, you know, if a developer, say, buys a, a parking lot in downtown Dallas and wants to build an apartment building, they're going to ha have to go through a series of community meetings, present some drawings and some plans. Here's what the building will look like. Here are the kinds of amenities and the landscaping. And people who live in the surrounding community get to come to those meetings and say, well, actually, I don't like it. It's too tall. Can you make it shorter? Or can you add in more landscaping? Can you add in more parking? This is going to create more traffic in our neighborhood. Or, you know, there are going to be more kids going to school and we don't have the space for them. Uh, so what are, you know, can you make this a, a senior 55 plus development and not allow families with kids in it? So this sort of negotiation process between people who live in a community and the developers trying to build housing makes it very difficult to build to add any new housing in some places. It makes it especially hard to add rental housing. There's often a stigma associated with renters, although all of us have been renters at some point in our life. We're people too. 
And it's particularly hard to build subsidized housing or things like permanent supportive housing. Neighbors push back really hard against that. You know, and some of this, like, we can all understand that having your neighborhood change, having more development does bring in more people, maybe more foot traffic, maybe more cars, does put some demands on public services. But giving existing residents veto power over developments that they don't want makes it really hard for a city, a neighborhood to add enough housing, to add it in the right places. And it, we wind up not building enough overall or building it in the wrong places, right? Not close to jobs, not close to transit, not in places that have some of the best public school systems. So we have, we have really given an enormous amount of power to existing community residents who then are allowed to veto people coming into their community. And that creates some really enormous costs that all of the rest of us have to bear. I know Rebecca's going to jump in, but I do have to add, there's also parking requirements sometimes, right? So that's one of the things that we're impacted by here locally, that there are parking requirements. And I know this is kind of off the cuff, but Dr. Jenny, anything you would add about how sometimes parking requirements can restrict development as well? Yeah, parking is actually the the secret uh, the secret weapon against new housing because it adds costs. Um, I used to teach real estate finance, and we would give the students an assignment every year: take a piece of land and uh, you know describe what you would do with it, and then do the math to figure out how to make it work. And parking, it turns out, is really expensive. So surface parking takes up a lot of space, which reduces the amount of space that you can build for rentable units. Um, if you want to do structured parking, that gives you more space, but structured parking can cost $50,000 per, per space. So if you think about building an apartment building, if you have to spend $50,000 just to build a parking space, and often for a two-bedroom apartment, they may require two structured parking spaces, that's $100,000 just for the parking, leave aside the actual housing people are getting into, this makes a lot of deals just not pencil altogether, or in order to pay for the costs of that, they're going to have to price uh, the finished housing, the price of the rent is going to have to be higher to take that into account. You know, and we often, we require parking minimums, even for things like permanent supportive housing and subsidized housing, where a lot of people don't own cars, they take public transit, but the developer is still required to build the parking on site and pay for that. So we've got some red tape to overcome. We've got some what we call in the space a lot, the nimbyism, the not in my backyard. So what do we do? How do we overcome those things to simply build more homes where people want to live? Yeah, there's sort of the, the simple answer, and then there's the more complicated answer. Um, you know, the, the simple answer is we need to change the rules to make it easier to build more homes, to add capacity, um, and in particular to build more diverse homes at different price points, both rental and owner-occupied, different sizes. The complicated part is that exactly how those rules need to change is going to look different in every community, right? So Dallas has some very low density suburbs, you've probably got some places that have mostly single family homes on two acre minimum lots, right? You could get a lot more housing in those communities if you were allowed to build, say, row houses on 5,000 square foot lots, right? You could take one of those two acre parcels and split it up and build a whole bunch of townhouses, and those would be cheaper than the homes that are there, and that would add both more capacity and also a lower price point. But in a lot of the sort of built out communities in, uh, in downtown areas, in some of the inner ring suburbs, you've already got fairly dense housing. And so what they need to do is maybe increase the 
height limit? So if you've got, you know, two-story apartments, can you go to four-story apartments? Um, can you get rid of the parking minimum so that you make it cheaper to build? Um, one of the big things that all communities should look at is how can we make it easier to build housing as of right, not requiring as much of a long, drawn-out discretionary approval process. So Existing neighbors want to come way in, fine. That doesn't mean there needs to be an unlimited number of community meetings or that you need to keep going to back to the community until you get consensus, because we're never gonna get to consensus, right? So set out a fairly clear process. We're gonna have three community meetings, you know, six months apart, and then we're just gonna make a decision and move on. Not everybody's gonna be happy. Um, so changing the political process is really important. This is scary for elected officials. Uh, they worry that if they allow developments to go forward that get on people's nerves or that people don't want, that they will pay the price of this and lose their job in the next election. So part of what we have to do is convince our elected officials that there's actually support for adding more housing, that making these kinds of policy changes is politically viable for them and has potentially some big economic benefits for cities and regions. And so we should lean into those benefits. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, often for community members that are, you know, willing and, and wanting to see additional development, you know, one of my one of my top suggestions for them is to engage their elected officials, because most often they aren't hearing from the individuals that are in support of, but they're hearing from individuals that may not be in support of. So, so thank you for talking a little bit about some of the political um, waters that, that our elected officials are having to swim through as well. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about simply building, right? Like we just need to build more homes where people want to live. On the other side of that is we also have to be mindful that there are places historically and even probably now and future in which we are building in places that we do not need to build in. We need to stop building in those areas. What are some of those examples of those places and why do we need to stop building there? Yeah, there are, there are two kind of places that we should worry about building. Um, one is places that are really vulnerable to climate disasters. Um, and your, your in-state neighbor, Houston, is a great example. Houston gets hit by hurricanes, right? They come up in the Gulf. There are some neighborhoods in Houston that are at sea level or below that are very low lying and they flood every time there's a hurricane or a major storm. So neighborhoods that time after time flood uh, and we go in and fix up the houses and replace them, people move back in, it floods again. We should stop building and especially stop rebuilding homes in places that we know time after time. You know, People are in danger. They live there often because those are the cheaper places that they can afford to live. But those are really hazardous neighborhoods for the people living there. And we should find other places for them to move to that are going to be safer. Um, these exist all over the country. Uh, we are building a lot of homes in the Southwest that depend on the Colorado River for water. The Colorado River is running out of water. And so we are literally building entire subdivisions in places where there may not be a steady water supply 10 years from now. Um, and you know, we, we know this, we see this coming down the road, but we have not been able to redirect uh, away from that. You know, these are these are two sides of the same coin. Part of the reason we wind up building in places that are either very vulnerable or that have a big impact on climate is because we're not building enough homes in the places that are safe, where we already have infrastructure, where we could accommodate more people. We're pushing a lot of this to wildfire-prone areas, flood-prone areas, 
areas that are going to have water stress and drought because we can't build enough in the places that are safer and better resourced. You talked about Houston a little bit and the hurricane, and this is a great example of this as well, but predictably, the ones who end up surf suffering the most um, from the wrong type of building or building in the wrong place are BIPOC. So why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's, not, it's not a bug, it's a feature. People who have really limited resources, uh, limited wealth, limited income, live where housing is cheap and land is cheap, and that tends to be places that are more dangerous. Houston, New Orleans, we also see this is true. Um, Florida is kind of an unusual place because Florida has a lot of expensive second houses in really vulnerable places, but areas like the Florida Panhandle um, also wind up having, for instance, a lot of uh, mobile home parks are located in places that are really vulnerable to climate. Um, we know that a lot of the Native American reservations have some of the worst climate conditions um, because people were forcibly relocated to places where essentially there wasn't as much demand for housing. Um, and so, you know, people live where they can afford to live. Um, and, you know, the federal government has also not provided anything like the resources to provide good drinking water. Um, I mean, you know, Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi are perfect examples. We have not provided resources and infrastructure to make these safe places to live. Um, and so, you know, people who have the means to move elsewhere do, and then the tax base to support those communities goes down. So it, it really becomes a very vicious spiral. Absolutely. And, and if you caught the term that Rebecca used, BIPOC, that is Black Indigenous People of Color, it is an acronym um, that has kind of has moved forward in our community over the past several years. Uh, thank you. There's there's two things I jotted down just there. Water supply. I was listening to KERA. It, it might have been earlier this week. And the water supply along the Colorado River, correct, is, is people are experiencing that, that they're forecasting that they, number one, don't have enough to sustain the growing population that is utilizing that water source. But there was no solution offered. Like there was no like, in, and because we know this with our forecasting, we're going to stop building. There was no solution provided. So I'm, I am also keeping an eye on that. But the areas of natural disaster, I believe in your book, you talk about we as a people are um, kind of subsidizing this ongoing building in areas that are prone to being hit from natural disasters because of insurance costs and all of those other things. Anything else you would kind of unpack for anybody around like how it doesn't just impact the individual and their family, which is devastating, right? They lose all of their belongings. They're having to move. Um, some people are, are, are losing their lives, but then there's a, there, there's, there's kind of a, um, Burden is, is not the word I want to use, but there's an impact, right? There's a financial impact that all of us are, are feeling through that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we feel the impact sort of different levels of geography. So one thing we know is that communities that are hard hit by natural disasters and that don't get recovery funds quickly enough, the whole community really suffers, right? So when people lose their home, when people lose their jobs, when they don't have either insurance or savings to rebuild, that means that people can't go back to work and go back to school, that households don't have money to spend in local businesses, 
um, you know, Puerto Rico is just a devastating example. They never got the support that they needed to after Maria. Um, and, you know, whole communities are really struggling to rebuild and to stay physically and financially viable. Um, but even at the national level, you know, we, we sort of forget that uh, you know, after a big storm happens, there are a variety of different federal funds that come in to help. So FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management System, comes in and provides temporary shelter, um, and then will provide funding for people to rebuild their homes. Um, you know, Congress can also allocate money if it chooses to through the Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery Program they very often will only provide you with funds to rebuild your house if you rebuild in the exact same place, even though we know that many of those are places we should not be rebuilding. Um, so our federal tax dollars are going to pay to rebuild people's homes in places that we know are likely to have uh, damage in the future. And we know, for instance, with flooding, there are many homes that flood multiple times and they get a payout from the federal government. They rebuild in the same location and then they flood again and they get another federal assistance. So we really need to be thinking strategically about how do we take our disaster recovery, instead of doing this reactively afterwards, how do we plan in advance, help identify the most vulnerable communities, give them the option to move someplace else, including moving whole neighborhoods. So you can take your social system, your family with you, move whole neighborhoods and communities to places that are safer before they get hit by the disaster so that we aren't picking up afterwards. And in the last minute, you know, trying to figure out where to move people to. Absolutely. Most, most of the natural disasters that we see are recurring, right? And so, and we kind of know the, the pace and the cadence of when those happen. So thank you. Thank you for, for um, offering that. Um, it, we're kind of into the next chapter, chapter four. Um, and this question is about how does housing assistance in the U.S. differ from housing assistance in most developed countries? And why does it, why is there that difference? Why does that meet, uh, why is that such a huge problem? Yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, I wrote a series of case studies with some colleagues from other countries. And the idea was to have, uh, you know, people from other developed countries talk about how they provide support, especially for low income households and how they provide rental housing. And it was just astonishing to find out that the U.S. is so stingy with housing assistance compared with most of our rich neighbors. Um, you know, so for instance, France provides much more social housing, not just for low-income households, but for middle-income households. So they build, they're still building a lot of social housing, building it in many different kinds of communities. They've made a real push to, to build this in communities that are close to transit and jobs and kind of desirable places. And they pay for this, right? There's a essentially kind of a, an insurance system, a tax on major employers that provides federal funding to keep building and maintaining more social housing. So low-income and moderate-income households have a place to live that is always going to be, um, you know, rent-restricted. Um, you know, in countries like Germany, low-income households automatically qualify for a top-up of income to pay for housing costs. And this is not contingent on budget set by Congress. It's just everybody who has a low income qualifies, you get the cash, this just shows up in your bank account every month you're taken care of. Um, and it was really shocking talking to my colleagues in these other countries, and they couldn't believe that the US doesn't provide an entitlement to housing assistance to all low income households. Um, so in this country, we are limited, you know, vouchers are limited by their allocation from Congress, 
public housing, we haven't been building any additional housing since the early 1980s, and in fact have been taking down units. Low-income housing tax credit is our main production vehicle. That's very expensive, it's very slow, and there's nowhere near enough to go around. So these are our sources of assistance, and only about one in four low-income households gets any kind of subsidized housing. Other people are left to double up, to live in unsafe and unhealthy housing. They might be living two hours away from their job and commuting. Uh, and many of them are housing insecure. They're spending more than half of their income on housing. They're forgoing food and medicine and other necessities. Um, so we have a lot of people who are in very precarious positions, some of whom then become homeless as well. Um, and this, you know, this is just, this is terrible for the communities we live in. This takes a terrible toll on families, on people's physical health, their mental health, on ch children's development. Um, so we are really cutting ourselves off, uh, you know, from providing good assistance and good living situations for an awful lot of people. I love hearing uh, the differences between what some of the other uh, countries do to us, especially hearing that word entitlement can be such a bad word here. <laughs> um, so you say that there were, in your book, you talk about several low-income housing options that were popular in the 19th century um, that were then outlawed in the 20th century. Can you talk a little bit about those and um, help us understand if bringing them back would help? Yeah, one of the really big differences is that until the early 20th century, there wasn't an expectation that everybody would have kind of a self-contained housing unit with their own kitchen and bathroom. Um, and so that's really sort of the biggest difference. So, you know, during the during the 19th century, when people started to move in large numbers from farms into cities, there were lots of workers who needed a place to live. And the typical thing was that you would rent a room in somebody's house, right? So maybe, you know, a family would have an extra bedroom and you would rent that out. Um, and then we had versions of boarding houses where, you know, typically like women who had been married and their husband had died, but they owned the house, they would rent out all of the space in the house. So you would rent a bedroom, often a shared bedroom, um, and, you know, maybe some meals would be provided as part of this, uh, but you would be sharing essentially a house with a bunch of people. Everybody is just looking for, you know, a minimum amount of housing. Um, you know, we used to do more sort of uh, worker dormitory style housing to accommodate kind of large manufacturing plants. But all of these sort of collective ways of providing housing are cheaper than having a fully formed, you know, new build apartment for every, every person or every household. Most of those are illegal. So boarding houses are illegal. You know, the sort of uh, more recent version, uh, single room occupancy hotels, where you get to rent, you know, a room that might have a half bath, but doesn't have a full bath or a kitchen. Those are illegal to build. And we've actually torn down most of the ones that existed. You know, there's sort of some new versions uh, branded as co-living, but they are new build and they are very expensive and actually marketed to pretty high income households, but just a sort of cheap way of you know sharing housing. It still happens. You can certainly go to particularly a lot of immigrant neighborhoods and you will see a bunch of roommates who are sharing a house or an apartment. Often they're in violation of the lease because there are too many people living in the unit, but that's the only way people can afford to find a place to live. We shouldn't make that behavior illegal. We should make it easier for people to do. Amazing. As, as you were talking earlier, um, I mean, I love I love the housing conversation. I could totally stay in that space for a long time. 
as you were talking, one of the, I guess, uh, populations that not a lot of people think of, and again, this is totally off the cuff, but just a note, are people on fixed incomes, right? As the rising, as, as rising housing costs, rental costs is going up, people that are fixed income usually are, are, are elderly, are, are seasoned um, individuals and or individuals that are, are disabled or otherly abled, are also feeling that punch, that pinch of not having diverse housing options. Um, anything, anything, Dr. Jenny, that you would illuminate, especially around those on fixed income. Yeah, and we we're going to have a whole conversation about how we're not planning for the aging of our population. We have so many older adults uh, at lots of different income levels and with different kinds of needs. You know, people are living longer than before, which is great, and many of them are healthier and able to live independently longer than before. But we've got a lot of older households who are living in three or four bedroom houses that maybe they lived in when they had kids. It's now too much house for them to maintain. Um, and in many cases, you know, I live in a city that has a lot of row houses. Those all have stairs. They're not great places for people to age in place, but we don't have age-appropriate accessible housing in those same neighborhoods and communities that people could move into. So there are lots of seniors who would actually love to move to something that is smaller, that is more appropriate for them, but they can't find anything or they would have to move to a different community and break up their social networks. And often the smaller units are new build and they're expensive. Uh, you know, so cities like Philadelphia, there are a lot of older adults living in row houses. If they sold their row house, they wouldn't be able to afford to buy even a studio apartment uh, because those are so much more expensive. And so we've got people trapped in, in housing that really doesn't fit them. Um, you know, and, and the, the issue of, you know, our most of our older housing stock is not accessible. It would be prohibitively expensive to require it to become accessible, but we've got a lot of people who are in homes that are not really safe and healthy for them anymore. Absolutely. And when we're talking accessibility, we're talking doorway entrances, like the very basic of basics, shower, tub combination that allows for someone with limited mobility. Um, you know, they don't have a ramp up to the front front door, those type of things when we're talking about accessibility. So thank you. Thank you for offering um, some insight there. Um, People's homes have been, right, we, we're taught this growing up. Our homes are generally our main source of wealth. How we build wealth is gotta be a homeowner. You should own a home. That is the way you build wealth, equity, so on and so forth. But um, that can hurt people. That can hurt individuals. It can hurt society as a whole with that kind of being the narrative that we can continue to teach people and draw upon. Can you help unpack that a little bit as well? Yeah, um, and going back, Philadelphia is a great way to think about this. So we have a lot of, Philadelphia has a lot of older homeowners in older houses. Um, many of them have actually paid down their mortgage, so the mortgage isn't that much, uh, but they are still having a hard time paying for the cost of housing because of rising property taxes, because of insurance, and because of the maintenance, right? So we sometimes think about uh, the main hurdle to getting into homeownership is coming up with a down payment and buying it. We tend to forget that homes are really expensive to live in. If you are your own landlord, you have to fix everything that breaks, um, and often accessible first-time homeownership is an older house that has pretty high maintenance needs. You know, we also saw in the Great Recession, 
people had bought homes, they had put all of their life savings into the down payment, and then the value of the home fell, in some cases by 30 to 50%. That's all of the equity that you have built up that is just gone overnight. Some of those markets came back, but there are places where it's taken 10 years for prices to come back to where people initially bought. So they have not built equity and they have been underwater for a long time, right? This puts them at risk of going into foreclosure and losing the house. Um, we saw a lot of particularly Black and Latino households who bought in like 2005, 2006 at the peak of the bubble, who went through foreclosure, they lost the house, they lost the wealth that they had built up, and they are still renters and will have trouble accumulating another down payment. Um, so homeownership is risky, and we need to be careful about counseling people when they're buying their first home. This is risky. You need to have some cash set aside for maintenance when it comes up or for an unexpected property tax bill. Um, and you know, it would be helpful if we could help people build up more savings as renters and continue to build up savings as homeowners. You also can't access your home equity that easily. Uh, you can't sort of go to an ATM and withdraw you know, $1,000 against the value of your house, you have to go through the process of getting a home equity loan or line of credit. So it's not like this is liquid wealth. It's really easy to tap if you have a short-term emergency. Yeah, we know that that liquid wealth is sometimes what causes, is that thing, if, if you're able to have that, is that thing that causes someone from becoming homeless or not when catastrophe hits. So what can we do to help diversify everyone's assets and build more uh, build up more of that liquid wealth or funds. Yeah, there are lots of things that we could do. The main problem is that our federal tax policy has focused on homeownership so much that it has really not developed incentives for people to build wealth outside of homeownership. Um, you know, so if you think about it, you get to write off your interest and your property taxes from your income taxes. That encourages people to put more and more of their money into housing. But what we really need are things like federal tax incentives where you can set up sort of like a 401k, but for short-term needs, right? That you can opt to have money deducted from your paycheck and put into an account that's somewhere between you use it to buy your groceries every week versus you use it for retirement, right? It's the middle kind of savings that we really need to encourage. We could use federal tax policy to incentivize that if we wanted to. We could use a lot of the structures we've built up around employer-provided health insurance and retirement programs to make this just an automatic part of your payments. So you don't have to think about it. Um, and there's some great plans out there. We've just chosen not to do that. You know, for low-income households, I think we also need to seriously talk about things like individual development accounts, child development accounts, which are sometimes called baby bonds. For people who have no wealth and no savings, giving them a small amount and helping them to invest it and to set it aside is the only way to get them started on the path of building assets. Um, even some programs like HUD's Family Self-Sufficiency Program, helping people to uh, accumulate a little bit of wealth in a designated account that they can go with them. It's a lot of setting up this sort of architecture of little financial nudges, some tax incentives, some direct subsidies. Once people have a little bit of wealth, it is easier to build more. But if you have no savings and you're spending every penny in your paycheck just to cover your basic needs, you are not able to get on that. And that puts people at a lot of risk. You know, one missed job, even you know, getting your hours cut suddenly you don't have enough and you have no savings to fall back on. I I just what is, I just read an article that said that over 50% of Americans don't have enough uh, in their savings to cover a $1,000 emergency. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and renters in particular, because they don't have this automatic way to save. So we have a lot of really financially vulnerable households. We saw that at the start of the pandemic. People have nothing in their savings account and any kind of disruption to their income is just catastrophic. I was I was going to I was going to mention the pandemic, right? Like no one was prepared for that. (laughs) If you had a savings or if you had, you know, a a way that you could draw upon the wealth or the 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 the, um, support system of your family, um, you might have fared well. But if you were already precariously housed, right, like you use that word earlier, you're already precariously housed and or employed or have all of the other things that are impacting individuals day to day, that in and of itself was really um, a detriment, uh, was a detrimental effect to many individuals, especially their savings. People are still trying to rebuild their savings coming out of that. I, I mean, listening and reading news stories about people's credit during that time and individuals having to rely even even more heavily on credit as well. Um, We we talk, you talk a little bit about taxes, right? We um, love the tax conversation, Um, but tax policies distort housing and, and what changes can we make to our tax policies to get more of the housing we need and less of the housing we do not need? Yeah, this is, it, it's such a complicated situation where local governments have to pay for a lot of public services. So K through 12 schools are one of the big ones, but also things like public safety, you know, parks, libraries, uh, streets and sidewalks, local governments have to pay for all of that. And they have limited ways that they can raise funds. In most states, property taxes are one of the key ways that local governments raise revenue. Um, And it's not a crazy idea. So you tax people's homes or the the land that businesses own, use that to pay for things like the services that people who live and work in your community provide, right? That actually works reasonably well. Um, But what it does do is create incentives for local governments to be picky about the kinds of new development they allow. So if you are looking at a proposal for either a bunch of studio apartments that are, you know, would sell for $200,000 or a bunch of big single family houses that would sell for $800,000, the higher valued houses bring in more property tax revenue per unit of housing that gets built. So local governments are often leaning towards, well, let's use our zoning to you know, prefer expensive big homes because then that brings in more revenues that we can use to pay for our public services. Uh, you know, the part that they're forgetting is that big houses bring in more families with kids who go to school. Studio apartments often bring in families who don't have kids and so they may be cheaper on the public services. Um, but there's really this bias towards screening out lower valued homes and especially subsidized housing because of a belief that it doesn't pay for itself. You know, one of the distortions too is that we fund so much of this at the local government level. So the city, the town, the county, um, and really what we need is for the entire region to have housing that suits workers at a wide range of incomes in you know metro areas like Dallas, where you've got a lot of small bedroom communities, the, the bedroom communities don't want commercial development because the residents don't like the traffic. The affluent places don't want workforce housing or moderate income housing, and they just hope somebody else is gonna do that, right? So like city of Dallas will build all of the apartments for you know, workers, they may come and work in our community, but they can't live there because we only allow you know, big, expensive, single family homes. Um, so, you know, it would be helpful if we did more 
funding of services regionally um, and sort of you know, sharing some of the some of the resources between wealthy and less wealthy communities and thinking about the needs for our public services and infrastructure, including affordable housing, which is part of our infrastructure, right? We should be thinking about making sure that that's provided regionally, funded regionally, and available in all parts of the region. But this is, it's really hard with the way we have our structure of local government set up. They don't work that way. <laughs> They're all setting their own taxes, paying for their own services, and not really cooperating with their neighbors. I, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> that's why Rebecca is such an amazing co-host. I think two things, because I'm also kind of seeing some of the questions around solutions. There's two things I've heard of, tax abatements, right? Local governments using tax abatements as a potential way, a solution. Community land trust, right? That, that's also a way that I know that some areas and neighborhoods and communities have really um, tried to think about solutions um, so that, if, that, that people that might be impacted by rising property taxes, if there's a community land trust that's there, it, Dr. Jenny, anything that you would add about tax abatements or like community land trusts, those possible solutions? Yeah, I mean, community land trusts have worked really well in some places, but they're hard to scale up. So they work best as fairly small scale solutions, um, and they tend to work best in places where land is not that expensive um, and where housing prices don't fluctuate a lot. So it's more attractive to be part of a community land trust and have some caps on the appreciation if it's not a fast rising area. Uh, but there, there's sort of limited demand for community land trusts, and so it's hard to grow those. Your property tax abatements, the, the one that's most typically done is for older households. So seniors in many places, long-term older homeowners um, can usually get an abatement of their property taxes so that they're not displaced. Um, that can be helpful for an individual household. It's sort of putting things off till farther down the road. And again, some of what we need to do is be helping seniors move into homes that are financially a better fit and physically a better fit for them. So it's kind of delaying a difficult decision. I know Jolie talked about how much everyone enjoys discussing taxes, um, but the only thing that folks love uh, talking about more than taxes is local government. Um, Jenny, we at Housing Forward work in two counties, and each of those counties have multiple local governments. <clears throat> so how does that fact alone hamper adequate and equitable development, and is there anything that we can do to solve that? Yeah, there, there's sort of two things that make it really difficult with doing everything at the local government level. One is that there are just enormous differences in the capacity of local governments. Um, so I used to live in Los Angeles. You know, the city of Los Angeles has a city planning department with something like 400 full-time staff. So they've got a ton of people and they've got a housing authority and they've got a housing department and community development. So they've got a lot of people thinking about you know, what is the quality of our housing? What do we need that we don't have? How can we create kind of, you know, uh, financial programs to help first time? Like they've got a lot of staff to think about creative ways to, to accomplish their goals. But then there are a bunch of really small communities. Some of the small communities are pretty wealthy. And so they're actually, you know, they may not have a ton of staff, but they also don't have a ton of needs. But there's some really small communities that are resource constrained. You might have, you know, one person in the entire city planning department, and they're responsible for code enforcement of existing homes, uh, you know, building permits for people who want to build a deck onto the back of their house, plus planning out how they're supposed to accommodate population growth. And they just, they literally don't have the bandwidth or the capacity or the time to do this. 
Um, you know, so when we were talking earlier about how the kinds of policy changes we need to think about, how do you expand housing capacity and you know come up with more diversity? How do you deal with some of your fiscal needs? There are a lot of communities that just don't have the staff to do that kind of planning and policy design. Um, and so one thing that I would love to see more of both from HUD and from states is providing some technical assistance and guidance, right? So smaller communities, what should you be doing? How can you do this? Let's make this really easy. Let's provide you with maybe some model language, with some examples, match you up with consultants and make this easier for you to do the good things that you want to do, but just don't have room for. The harder one is we have some particularly wealthy, white, fairly small communities that just don't want to accommodate housing for anybody who's not rich. And they know exactly what they're doing. They are very strategic about using their zoning, using their tax policies, using uh, you know all sorts of tools and techniques uh, not just the regulations, but threats of lawsuits, things like historic preservation sometimes, um, in order to keep themselves exclusive and wealthy and white. And there's really not a lot we have come up with that works. Um, there, you know, Some states are trying to create requirements for every locality to build additional housing or to build moderately priced housing. Enforcing that in these exclusionary places is really hard. Uh, they will hire lawyers you know, till kingdom come. They have all the money they you know that they need to spend on that. So getting those places to play ball and to provide the kinds of regional resources we need is really difficult. Um, you know, there are lots of conversations going on about how we could do that better, but that's going to be a really tough nut to crack. Yeah, I I mean I jotted down a couple of really quick um, tidbits. The um, TA that you mentioned in the housing policy, right? I've been a part of a couple of different groups that are working on housing policy. There's a bond coming up, and like, how do we in that bond think about housing? What what kind of housing policies or investments can be in that to help support the creation of housing? Um, to the point that you made, uh, many of the lack of building of diverse housing options, whether it's multifamily, whether it's condo, to increase density and decrease the cost for individuals, right? So someone mentioned we're talking a lot about rentals, but we're also talking about ownership and diversity of housing options, right? Home ownership um, or owning property doesn't have to be just in a single family style, but it can also be a diversity of housing options for you to become a homeowner, which could be, right, a lot of cities um, and areas have moved away from the increase of diversity, right? So condos, self, um, single owner condos used to be a thing, more townhomes. And so when we're talking about this diversity of housing options, we're not just talking about renting. You may hear us say that a lot, but we're also talking about the diversity of housing options so people can afford along the income spectrum um, and have the opportunity to have housing that they could potentially own that may be a condo, that may be a townhome, that may be a duplex or fourplex as well. So I wanted to lift that up. The other thing is, to the point that you made, it's not just happenstance that development is not happening in certain areas. It's some intentional efforts that zoning is one of those efforts, right? Some legislative things are another, another of those efforts that people have. There was, um, you know, there's some covenant agreements that are placed and in, in things like that. Dr. Jenny, would you would you um, illuminate anything else that I'm that I may be forgetting about those things that are done really intentionally to to um, deter that kind of development? Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways that communities can block development that they don't want, and they're very clever about it. So, 
you know, single family zoning with large lots is the obvious one. And lots of places just do that. And that's very effective and they stop. Um, but we've seen in places where, for instance, the state government tries to push back against that and say, you need to legalize ADUs or you need to legalize duplexes, the communities will say, all right, you can build an ADU in your backyard, but the only person who can live in it has to be related to the person who's living in the main house. And your ADU has to have two off-street parking spaces, or you can build a duplex, but it can't be any larger than the single family house that's already there. So there are a thousand ways, you know, in, uh, in, in older communities like DC, historic preservation becomes a huge obstacle. You can't change the external structure of the building, which also means you can't tear it down and replace it with something that's bigger. So we've got whole neighborhoods that are frozen in amber. Um, and, you know, the hard thing is that if you take away one of the tools, they will just find others. <laughs> so, you know, and the discretionary process that we talked about earlier really benefits them. As long as the existing residents get to show up and complain about some sort of development, they can drag out the process indefinitely. They can make it so expensive to build anything other than the big expensive houses. You know, they can make it infeasible financially to build an apartment building, even where it's legal to do on paper. Um, and that's the part that's just, it's really hard to get around all of the loopholes and the backdoor ways they have of fighting this. And continue to do the work that we do. <laughs> Every day, we, we've leaned a little bit into housing policy. We know that there are housing policy hurdles that we have to overcome that, you know, maybe the, the politics of it all is making it really tough. How do you suggest that we break free from some of that housing policy logjam that's just not allowing us to increase development? Yeah. So one of the more promising thing that's happening is that we are moving a lot of these conversations from the local level to the state level and even a little bit to the federal level. Right. The local politics are so hard because your city council members or your board of supervisors are responding to constituent concerns in some way, right? And they hear the loudest voices, the anti-housing voices. Um, and so moving some of this up to the state level, things like state mandates that you have to legalize ADUs and duplexes, right? That can actually take some of the pressure off the local elected officials. And I've talked to some local electeds who say, you know what, I like having a mandate from the state because it makes it easier for me to go back to my voters and say, you know what, it's not that I'm trying to force apartments to get built. It's that, you know, Sacramento or, you know, Boston or, you know, Salt Lake City, the, the capital is making me do this. We have to do our part and comply or they're going to take away, you know, money for infrastructure that we really want. So the state can be really helpful. I will say that in states like Texas, the city, suburban, rural politics in the state legislature are sometimes really tricky. So I don't know how, you know, you have to balance the, the state can be a helpful partner or it can be a not helpful partner. Um, and that is really a state by state consideration. Um, you know, the federal government is getting more engaged. So it's the new infrastructure law has um, competitive grants for communities that want to build more housing around transit, that want to do more kind of walkable urban development um, and build in amenities and retail. There's some grants to help do that. There's some planning grants, there's some incentives, um, particularly around doing kind of better development of infrastructure tied in with housing. So I think those are, those are fantastic starts. Um, the other thing with the, with the politics is really making it easy for local elected officials and state elected officials to understand there's a constituency that wants more housing, that wants more diversity of housing, that wants to have 
more walkable neighborhoods. Um, and you know, we see particularly with younger households, many of them don't want to drive, right? They want to live someplace where they can walk to parks and restaurants and have community nearby. That's a constituency that would benefit from changing a lot of these rules. Younger households, and especially renter households, don't vote in the same rates that older homeowners do. Um, so, you know, organizing younger renter households to show up at community meetings, to show up in mayoral elections and vote for things, um, that's one of the ways we're going to get more change. There is a lot more kind of local activity around this, but it's taking a while to break through. Um, and I will say at the federal level, there's been very much a tendency for kind of silos around existing funding programs, right? So like the National Association of Home Builders will fight to the death uh, to protect tax breaks for owner-occupied housing. Um, you know, National Low-Income Housing Coalition is organized around more funding for vouchers and public housing. There's a whole industry around the tax credit, but everybody is basically asking for more money for my little program, as opposed to how do we think more holistically about the well-being of households across dimensions? How do we push for these kinds of policy changes that aren't tied to one funding pot, but that would make the existing funding go farther and help more people? You write that housing policies, housing policy is one of the few issues that doesn't align very neatly with partisan positions. Um, so is that an opportunity? Um, how do we use that to create and how do we capitalize on those? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the one of the strongest points about pushing for housing reforms is that there's not one ideological or partisan bucket. Um, you know, building more housing in the right places serves a whole lot of goals. So it makes places more economically competitive, right? And I've seen places like Utah. Um, and Virginia that are kind of Republican leaning states where their governors are really concerned that they are not attracting and retaining businesses and workers because they're becoming more expensive, right? So this is an economic competitiveness, keeping our businesses here, allowing our economy to grow and stay competitive. And that's, that's exactly right. That's true that more housing at more different price points would help with that. You know, places like California have pushed a lot harder on things like equity for low-income households, on the climate benefits for doing this. You know, Minneapolis pushed for their uh, their zoning reform explicitly on racial equity because they have a huge gap in wealth and income and well-being between Black and white households and between white and Native households. So for them, racial equity was the centering focus. All of those are right. The same kinds of policies check all of those goals. They get us closer to all of these good outcomes, which means that you can frame it for whatever audience you're talking to. You know, I find it really interesting that Montana and Utah are pushing hard at state-level zoning reforms. Those are very red states, but those governors and those state legislatures have really embraced the economic competitiveness and to some degree sort of you know, letting property owners have more flexibility to do what they want to with their own land. Um, you know, but we're seeing framings that work for a lot of places and smaller communities too, not just the obvious suspects like, you know, Anchorage, Alaska got rid of their parking minimums, right? That's not a place that you would have thought was, you know, in the vanguard of zoning reform. But again, they're recognizing the dollars and cents issue. This just doesn't make sense. It was killing some of their small businesses. I was not expecting Anchorage, Alaska to come up in our conversation. It was not on my 2023 bingo board for for, for on the on the uh, cutting edge of, you know, incentivizing development. This is 
I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying our conversation. Last year, our team, we, we had this conversation and kind of peeled back the um, quote unquote American dream, right? We had a very good conversation about like the American dream doesn't mean the same to everyone. Um, the American dream for some is a myth and for some, you know, they fully realized and for some, you know, they're still striving to achieve that American dream. Um, how would you talk about redefining it? How would you talk about updating that American dream and why, why do we need to do that? Yeah, it's kind of amazing that we still have very much this idea of the American dream is the 1950s version of a nuclear family buying a single family house with yard and white picket fence in a suburb, right? It's all residential suburbs and all identical houses. Um, and that's just not what most people want today of the communities they live in. Uh, so one of the things that we know about younger households is that they are much more interested in living places that are more walkable, uh, where you have this integration of kind of neighborhood retail and commercial and parks and homes. And to get that, you have to have you know a denser area. People are more interested in living close to public transit and having those other options. Um, financially, the single family house in a yard is not going to be an option for an awful lot of people, um, particularly younger households kind of getting into their first time home. They don't have the down payment or in order to buy that house, you are way out in the exurbs, you are two hours, and then you're spending all of your time commuting to and from work and you don't have time to spend with your family. So people are really asking for a diversity of options and lifestyles, right? And that's great, right? For some people, the single family house with the yard is still gonna be what they want. And we have a lot of those, but what we haven't done is provide enough other options. Um, so Jolie, you brought up earlier the option of like, you know, condos as first-time homeownership. If you live in one of the bigger cities that's pretty dense where, you know, there's vertical living, a condo is a great option for first-time home buyer. It gives you some stability of housing payments, but still allows you to live in this walkable neighborhood that you want to and be close to things, right? We should have more of those. Things like, you know, a row house that has small outdoor space, and then you're down the street from a park, right? Families with kids often will tell you, that the suburbs are actually really isolating because kids can't get themselves around. This requires parents to drive them everywhere, right? Live in a neighborhood where the kids can walk down the street with their neighbors and go to the playground and their other kids around. That's actually really family-friendly in a lot of ways. Multi-generational families. Lots of people don't want to live, you know, just the nuclear family. They want to have a neighborhood where maybe, you know, nuclear family lives together, but, you know, grandparents and cousins and neighbors are all within walking distance or even in something like a shared fourplex. So we really just need to make it, you know, lots of different kinds of families. People should have different options at different stages of their life, right? People at different incomes should have a chance to live in a community that feels appropriate to them. Um, And, you know, not everything is going to fit into the 1950s box. I love I love that idea of redefining the American dream, um, and I'm I'm happy. I, it was really exciting to hear some of how we can do that. Um, I think uh, you've talked a lot about and established the, pro- the 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 housing problem, but what are some encouraging develops around the politics of housing policy, and how do we spread these across the country? Let's end on the the encouraging words. 
Yeah. So the great thing is that there is so much energy right now about rethinking our housing problems and recognizing that this is not about individual people and families trying to solve their budget, that this is a collective problem. It's a collective need, and we're going to need collective action and, and policy changes to get there. Uh, you know, I, I was really encouraged in the 2020 electoral cycle Every single one of the Democratic uh, presidential candidates had a housing platform and talked about the need to build more housing and tackle zoning reform. We have literally never in my lifetime had that conversation in a presidential campaign. You know, the fact that we are seeing this in states across the country, in not just in the Californias and New Yorks, but in a lot of the other states as well. We are seeing this in a lot of our smaller communities, you know, places like Gainesville, Florida you know, has embraced more missing middle housing. You know, there's more conversation about this than we have ever had. Um, and that's really important. It's breaking through from just sort of the housing policy walks to more conversations around dinner tables, more conversations in local community meetings. Um, we are starting to see more places actually pass some of these zoning reforms. We're starting to get more information back about what works and what doesn't. California passed the first legalization of ADUs. It took them over a decade of tweaking the state laws before they got it right. But now they are they are permitting 60,000 ADUs. You know, so they are this is really working, but it took them a long time to work this out. We can learn from the examples that are working well. We're learning more also about the political organizing, the coalitions that can be helpful and work in different kinds of communities. Um, and all of that is going to be really important to sort of taking this out into the next stage, uh, taking this to more communities and getting people on board. This has been a tremendous conversation. I've tried my best to, to weave in, like as I've been looking at the Q&A, to weave in some of the questions that have been asked. Um, so I, I sincerely appreciate you kind of going there with me, team, um, during uh, during the moment. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I really sincerely appreciate it. I appreciate the team that's working behind the scenes as, as well. This has been a super incredible discussion. This is just the first of our hard conversation of the year. Here. Rebecca, thank you for being one of the most amazing co-hosts I've ever co-hosted with. Honestly, I, I don't know anyone else that can do it any better. So thank you. And Dr. Jenny Schutz, thank you so much for the book was fantastic. I hope everybody takes a, a read at that. We included it. Our team posted a link to that book so you can check it out if you weren't able to read it. A lot of great information in there, research, data, policy information, and kind of the why as well. Before we close out, I do want to tease our next big event. Um, many of you participated in our annual point in time count a few weeks ago. We will have all of that data presented, that data and analysis presented during our state of homelessness address coming up on Thursday, April 13th. Um, during that opportunity, we'll be sharing the results of that annual homeless census, a thorough review of the progress of Dallas and Collin counties, our system, and the next steps uh, the community must take to end homelessness here. Housing is just a part of the equation, and it's a huge part of the equation because it is the solution for us to be able to end homelessness for so many people. Um, that state of homelessness address will be held on Thursday, April 13th at 10. It will be hybrid, so people can also log in for that virtual opportunity. Thank you again for Ashford Hospitality for being our sponsor. Visit our website for other sponsorship opportunities.
opportunities, um, both for the state of homelessness and any of our ongoing 2023 hard conversations. I wish you all well, Dr. Jenny Schutz. Thank you again, Rebecca Hickam. Thank you. And everyone out there in the virtual world, I wish you well. I hope that you're taking care of yourself and that most importantly, we're taking care of each other. I wish you a wonderful rest of your Friday and a restful weekend. You all have a great one.